A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hi, crime fans. Welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. I'm very excited about today's episode, so thank you for joining me. I've gotten a ton of case suggestions, which I love. Every time I get one, I want to drop everything and just run to my computer, but sadly I have a day job, and unfortunately bathrooms don't clean themselves, so I will get to them. But you might have to be a little bit patient with me before you hear your story. And you'll have to let me know if you want a personal shout out for the suggestion or if you'd prefer to be quiet about it. The only time I probably won't cover a case is if I feel there's already adequate and respectful coverage of the case out there. If there's a documentary on Netflix, for example, I probably won't do that one. For me, I want to get the lesser known ones out there. John Bonet's case isn't any less important than anyone else's, but the story's out there. I don't think I'm going to be able to add anything to it. But in advance, I want to thank you for trusting me to tell these stories, and I hope I bring as much respect and compassion to them as you would expect. Today, I'm going to be telling the story of Jessica Newman. We are heading back to Calgary for this one. It was a suggestion by my loving fiancé, Tim, who actually worked with one of the major players in this story. He suggested it, and I had to look it up. One of the problems with local stories is that you only hear bits and pieces on the news. No one ever really ties things together for you. So I remembered some of it, but local cases just never seem to get podcasts made about them or documentaries unless they're really sensationalized, like the Greyhound bus killing or something that makes it to the international news. So this is definitely a story I don't think you can say has been overtold. However, this was also a very triggering story for me, as Jessica's the same age as my niece, whose life was cut short, so I found myself really engrossed in the details but it also stirs up some emotions and anxiety for me, so I'll probably take a break from this particular brand of homicide for a couple of weeks. Sources today are from a variety of local news, CBC, the Calgary Herald, and Global. Nancy Hicks, who's a local crime reporter at, at Global, she does, um, she does a podcast called Crime Beat, but she also does uh, TV specials, also called Crime Beat, um, she always does a really great job on them. She's very respectful, and she's done one on this case, so I would check that out if you have the opportunity. It airs on Global, but you can find episodes on YouTube. 
I try not to watch her coverage before I research a case, if she's done, done the case already. I actually like the internet sleuthing part of my research, taking the bits and pieces and trying to put together the full story, and I don't want to paraphrase someone else's hard work. But here is the exciting part about today. I had this episode pretty much ready to go when I got a lead on a possible interview with the lead detective in this case. I was thrilled, let me tell you, but I also don't like to get my hopes up, so I'm releasing this episode in advance of any potential extra information I might glean from an actual real-world homicide detective. So I really hope that there's a part two to this story that I could fill you in on uh, some extra information, some juicy details. I think it'll be very interesting to talk to someone that was actually there and remembers the details with a lot of clarity. I hate to think I ever get any information wrong, but it's entirely possible when the internet is kind of your library. So keep watching your podcast feed for a part two. And with that, here is the internet sleuth story of Jessica Newman. Jessica Newman was born July 22, 1990 in Quesnel, British Columbia. She was a fun-loving, vibrant young woman who was outgoing and always wanted to enjoy each moment to the fullest. Pictures of Jessica show a smile that was wide, natural, and could light up a room. When she was only 16, she got pregnant, which happens sometimes. It's hardly scandalous. She then got pregnant again shortly after. So I think this would have been between 2006-2008. And with the full consent of her family, she realized at the time that she was not in a position to raise kids with her young age and financial situation. So her, her family, and I believe it was likely her mother, maybe a sibling that was taking care of her two boys. Her mom was living in BC at the time of this case, so I'm not sure if the boys lived with her or with another family member here in Calgary. But it sounds like the relationship with her family was good. She wasn't struggling with any concerns over drugs or alcohol. She was just young and, and trying to get on her feet financially. She needed to mature a bit. So again, nothing scandalous. There was no custody issues or anything or anything relating to child services involvement. In her early 20s, she met Kevin Rublitz, who was older than her by about 10 years. There isn't a lot written about Kevin, but Tim knew him for a short time where he worked. There's a bit of debate about the time frame, but by the sounds of it, it was pretty close, if not overlapping, the dates of this case. He was working as a framer during that time. I won't name the company, obviously, but one of Tim's co-workers is pretty sure it was during this time period. Jessica and Kevin had a passionate and whirlwind romance, finding themselves inseparable and moving in together almost immediately. Shortly after, Jessica again found out she was pregnant and was this time thrilled that she was finally at an age of maturity that she could have an intact family. Kevin even bought her an engagement ring. But as things do, they didn't stay happy times for long and shortly after her third son was born, the relationship started to fall apart and they split up and he took the ring back. Tim remembers around this time at work asking around about where Rublitz was and would be told that he was on his cell phone yelling at his girlfriend and then he disappeared, only to reappear the next day saying he had a, quote, family emergency. So obviously it was a, a rocky relationship and definitely not an amicable breakup. Lots of breakups aren't, but Kevin took his revenge a bit further 
and actually went to court making allegations against Jessica that she was what he called a party girl that drank heavily and a lot of other nonsense that I guess the court just took his word for. And with her older boys not living with her, he really capitalized on her earlier mistakes. As a result, she lost custody to Kevin of their young son, and Jessica was devastated and determined to do anything she could to get custody back. Despite the allegations against her being false, she set to work going to the court-scheduled AA meetings and working towards getting the stability that raising a son on her own would require, including a place to live. Mike Han was a friend of Jessica's. I'm not sure how they knew each other initially, maybe through work, but he mentioned that he had a basement suite that she could rent from him in the neighborhood of Forest Lawn. This probably would have been around early 2014. Mike was double Jessica's age, but they had developed a friendship living in the same house, so he was privy to her wanting to get more visitation with her son. Jessica was quickly able to get over her relationship with Kevin and had started dating Ryan Chamberlain, who was a single father himself. That relationship was going well, and Jessica's family was supportive. Ryan was working up the nerve to ask Jessica to move in with him. Kevin also had moved on and started dating someone new. So about a year after their breakup and custody dispute, Jessica and Kevin were going to court on the morning of March 10th to amend the custody agreement back to 50-50. Jessica was thrilled and excited at the prospect of having more time with her little boy. In addition to the hearing on the 10th, she was scheduled to have a visit with her little guy on the 11th the next day. So she had a lot she was really looking forward to and they were working on a co-parenting agreement and the worst of things appeared to be behind her. Jessica's friend Tara, herself a social worker, was thrilled with the changes she had been seeing in Jessica. She saw her going from being down on herself to becoming a strong and independent 24-year-old woman. In the days before the hearing, Tara and Jessica would talk on the phone planning her celebration for the weekend after the hearing that they were going to have near a place called Pinoca, which to you non-Canadians is actually a real place. This was going to be a celebration with a pool and a slide, so required some planning. There was no way she would have missed that hearing. Jessica normally worked the day shift at the Water Grill, a restaurant in Forest Lawn, but to accommodate the hearing, she'd switched to the night shift. There's a bit of confusion about the actual dates. March 10th was a Tuesday, so I think all of this started on the 9th, the Monday. Jessica spent the weekend of the 6th and 7th at Ryan's place, and on Monday morning on his way to work, he dropped her off at her place. They texted each other as normal during the day. I believe that the water grill is located fairly close by her house as it's in the same neighborhood, but it was still probably a bit of a hike and it doesn't sound like Jessica had a vehicle. Public transit is notorious in Calgary for routes that take you 45 minutes to go as far as you could have probably walked in an hour. So when her roommate Mike offered her a ride as it was his day off, she took it. He remembers dropping her off at 3.59 for her four o'clock shift. He remembers because of course it was so close to the time that she was actually scheduled to be working. He expected to hear her come home around 10 p.m. Before he went to bed, he still hadn't heard her come in. Mike says he was concerned at first, but not overly so. More in a fatherly way, 
hoping that she wasn't staying out late or doing anything that might cause her to miss or kind of screw up her hearing. Jessica rented the basement suite, so it wouldn't have been too unusual for them to not see each other that much. But he texted her the next morning to wish her good luck at the hearing. He then texted her later that afternoon to ask if she was still planning on going to the gym with him, but she, he didn't hear anything. Mike figured probably something happened at the hearing and she just needed some space. Meanwhile, Jessica's mom Rhonda out in BC was getting concerned as well because she hadn't gotten an update on the hearing. The next day, Mike still hadn't heard from her and his concern was starting to grow, but he thought maybe she was staying at a friend's. Thursday, while Mike was at work, Kevin and Mike exchanged some texts as he had come by to drop off their son for their visit and she wasn't there. Kevin tells Mike not to worry that she's probably on a bender or something and he's not too concerned. There's nowhere that I could find any mention of the hearing itself, whether it ever took place and what the outcome was. I know that uh, Mike had said that he had texted Jessica to on that morning to ask her where the heck she was. But I, I don't know if they they just cancelled the hearing or there's just really no mention about what, what sort of happened there. And I'm not sure if Mike asked Kevin anything about it. I probably would have just asked if, she, you know, was she there? How did it go? But guys are a bit different and I don't think Kevin and Mike would have been buddies, kind of as it were. Friday, Mike went to Jessica's work and was told that she hadn't been in since the weekend prior. Now Mike's very concerned. He talks to Jessica's mom, and on Rhonda's behalf, he calls 911 to report her missing. In the days following her being reported missing, police obviously have several suspects. There's Ryan, the current boyfriend. He hands over his phone, lets them search his car. He's ruled out. Then there's Mike, Jessica's much older roommate. He lets the police search her apartment, his apartment and hands over his laptop. He's ruled out. Then we have Kevin Rublitz, the ex-boyfriend and holder over her head of custody. On the same day the missing person was placed, he agrees to meet with Detective Matt Baker at his Woodbine apartment that he shared with his current girlfriend. During this initial interview, Rublitz said that he had picked Newman up from work around 9 p.m. and they went for coffee where they discussed the court hearing the next day and he dropped her off outside her apartment and went home. He did not see her go into her house. He said that when she didn't show up at court, he texted her, quote, where the hell are you, end quote, but she didn't reply. He told Baker he hadn't worried about her because he said, I figured she might have gone out drinking. She doesn't remember what she does. She flirts. At this time, he's happy to hand over his phone for examination. Only, he just needs it for a day or two at first. You know, for work. Only two days later, he calls the police station and says that he lost the phone. I think you can see where this is going. Two days later, in his second interview with Detective Baker, he made what the Crown Prosecutor Shane Parker referred to as a significant addition to his story. Detective Baker asked what route he took after dropping Jessica off at her home the night when she was last seen. Standard procedure to see if it matches up with what would be expected. For example, did the person take the most direct route, and if not, why? Rublitz hesitated. 
He said that he had hugged Jessica goodbye and gave her a kiss on the cheek, and it stirred up conflicting feelings for him, so he decided to go for a drive to, quote, clear his head. He said that he drove out to Balzac. Balzac is a small community or town 20 minutes by car north of Calgary on Highway 2. If you drive north for an additional 7 minutes, you will get to Airdrie. Remember this detail. It's important later. And yes, Balzac is also a real place. And that's Balzac with a Z, not an S. Rublitz was placed under surveillance, but nothing ever came of that. During the investigation, Detective Baker uncovers text messages between Jessica and Kevin. I'm not sure how they were able to analyze this data without either Jessica or Kevin's phone. Maybe by the miracle that is police work, or maybe text messages are saved in the cloud somewhere. I'm sure younger listeners can fill me in on that. But the interesting thing is that they found a series of rather lovey-dovey text messages between the two that spanned from December 2014 to March 2015 until she disappeared. It seems that although broken up, they were still carrying on, at the very least, a sexual relationship, and at the most, a full-blown relationship, all done in secrecy. Nothing of any of the texts alludes to any prior violence in the relationship, but it's interesting. Now, I'm just going to do a bit of conjecture here, because something feels really off about this. It could be that there there was still a spark there, and that they were working towards reconciliation. But to me, again, this is just a feeling. Maybe... Just maybe, Jessica was playing nice. Rublitz had control over visitation with her son. From all accounts, Jessica was fully invested in her new relationship with Ryan. And if she was considering reconciliation, girls talk. She would have told someone, if not her mom, at least a close girlfriend. When it comes to men and sex, Us girls can't keep quiet very well. We also don't forgive that easily. If you call me a bad mom, I'm not going to forget that shit. So I think that she felt maybe a bit like if she played nice, he might go through with his promise to give her 50-50 custody. But that is just my opinion. Only Jessica knows why she was together with Rublitz again. Despite the inconsistencies with Rublet's story, Jessica is still a missing person. There's no body and no evidence of a crime. And then... Hello, 911. For what city? Hi, I'm actually just outside of Calgary. I'm on Rage Road 284 and Township Road 264. We found a dead body in the ditch. Two months later in May, a construction crew working in Balzac... Remember where Rublet's admitted to going to clear his head? Yeah, out there discovered Jessica's body in a ditch along the highway. Rhonda, Jessica's mom, said, I thought after her being gone almost eight weeks that I was kind of prepared until I found out, and then I wasn't as prepared as I thought. Jessica was found wearing the same clothes she had been wearing when she was last seen by Mike Han. The medical examiner during the autopsy identified at least 75 stab wounds to her upper body. That's seven, five. At the time of Jessica's discovery, her mom, Rhonda, 
was also taxed with taking care of and grieving her husband who had been suffering from brain cancer. Now that detectives have evidence of Jessica's disappearance as a homicide, they set off with a warrant to search Rublet's van. Only get this, his van has been dropped off at a salvage yard only days after Jessica's body was found by Rublet's mother. Thank God the police, through their magic, were able to track it down. Police and prosecutors theorized that Jessica was sitting in the front seat of Rublet's van. Likely the two were having sex or at least working towards that. When her body was found, Jessica's black lace dress was pulled down to her waist, so this told police that the killing of Jessica was spontaneous, but no less intentional. Shane Parker said, Her state of undress infers the murder happened while she was intimate and vulnerable. 75 stab wounds to me is excessive, so he must have been in a frenzy of rage. Something set him off, but we'll never know what unless he talks. The interior of Rublet's van was clean, but not completely clean. Once the van's interior was stripped, they found evidence of blood on the passenger seat through the use of luminol. He had cleaned the van but missed the area under the seat near the bolts. There would have been a lot of blood with 75 stab wounds and the job of completely cleaning it all would have been impossible. Fortunately, Kevin botched it. A man has been charged in relation to a homicide from earlier this year. Kevin Rublitz, 30, of Calgary, is charged with second-degree murder. He will appear in court on Monday, June 29, 2015. Accumulation of evidence, both forensic and witness evidence. We've done a, a number of interviews with family, friends, and individuals who knew Jessica. We also seized a vehicle uh, and did a forensic examination of that vehicle. We believe that Rublitz had access and drove that vehicle on a regular basis. We believe that she died uh, on the evening of March 10th after she was picked up from work, that she uh, was killed somewhere in and around the city of Calgary, and that her body was dumped in that area because it's a remote location. And we believe that she was in that location uh, since the evening of March 10th. On November 2017, Kevin Rublitz went on trial. Here, at least in Alberta, from arrest to trial is almost always two years. You can pretty much put it on the calendar the day someone's arrested, at least for murder. Rublitz entered a not guilty plea and the defense counsel, Brennan Miller, offered up Rublitz's mother as the real killer. Apparently Rublitz's mom didn't care for Jessica, called her a party girl and didn't want her to get custody of their two-year-old son. And the van was actually owned by Rublitz's mom. There was another detail about her being found in one of Rublitz's mom's sweaters which is a bit confusing because the prosecution says she was half undressed with her dress hiked down to her waist. And then the defense counsel says she was wearing a sweater. But it was March, so here in Alberta it was probably chilly, so I could see her slipping on a hoodie. We call them hoodies here, like a sweatshirt with a hood, basically, over her dress. If you're fooling around, you really only need access to certain parts. So I don't see that as being a big detail. But Rublitz had already admitted to picking her up in the van that night, and he drove out towards Balzac, so this theory didn't really fly. I couldn't find anything on Rublitz's mom and how she felt about all this. She might have, for all I know, even offered herself up. 
because she was the one that took the van to the scrapyard. I wonder if she was ever investigated for obstruction of justice. Regardless, the jury didn't buy it, and Kevin Rublitz was found guilty of second-degree murder. Second-degree murder does carry an automatic 25-year sentence, but they still have sentencing hearing. As with second-degree murder, the judge has to decide or determine how many years need to be served before they become eligible for parole, a minimum of 10 in second-degree cases. Victim impact statements are also read at the sentencing hearings. For myself, the process of writing and reading out victim impact statements is probably the most painful part of the whole court process. For me, personally, it was worse than the autopsy photos and blood spatter analysts and all the gory stuff you can at least try to separate your idea in your mind of your family member with the science of what happens to bodies. But a victim impact statement is your, your one chance to tell this person exactly how their actions and choices have affected you. And it's just raw emotion. Rhonda Stewart, Jessica's mom, wrote a poignant statement dating, Kevin not only murdered a beautiful soul, a niece and a granddaughter, a cousin, a best friend, a mother, and my daughter, but he stole all the things she had yet to become. He annihilated everything Jessica was and everything she was ever going to be, and in doing this, he shattered those of us who love her. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Her boys need their mom today and next month and 10 years from now and 25 years from now. She knows that it will take their family far longer to grieve the loss than Kevin will ever serve in prison. That's why I always say as a family, we get stuck with the life sentence. The prosecutor asked for 17 years before parole eligibility and the defense asked for 12 to 15. They argued that Rublet's charter of rights against the cruel and unusual treatment were breached at the Calgary Remand Center. They said Rublitz was beaten after initially being placed in the general population and that he was confined to a 96-square-foot cell with two other people for between 21 and 24 hours a day. The judge sentenced him to 25 years with no eligibility for parole for 17 years as requested by the Crown prosecutor, stating that it was, quote, a savage attack involving almost unbelievable gratuitous violence. Rhonda said, How I wish that Kevin had been late picking her up from work that night, and that Jessica had gone home without him. Sometimes I wish that his van had broken down earlier that day, or I wish a million other things, useless things, hindsight things, that never happened. Wishes cannot rewrite the past, they can only reinforce the pain of losing Jessica. One of Tim's friends worked closely with Rublitz and had actually been asked out for beers by him only two nights before he killed Jessica. His reaction to the news was nothing short of shock. Nothing other than the arguments with his wife would have tipped him off that he was capable of such violence. Yelling at your wife on your phone is pretty immature, but it doesn't necessarily mean serial killer. I think it just goes to show that you never know someone. And that is the cold-blooded murder of Jessica Newman. Join me next week for another case and hopefully an update on this one. As usual, please subscribe, follow, and rate. But most importantly, keep on listening. Thanks, everyone.
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.